Hello and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with the effervescent Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, what's going on? I mean, according to you, bubbling to the top. I, uh, I, I am pretty, I think I'm fairly cheerful today. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, recording this I'm, and talking about some pretty interesting news and topics. So yeah, I'm doing all right. How was your weekend? My weekend is okay. I had my eyes dilated. So right now, everything, including my show notes, are just a blur. So, you know, if I start talking about like random 18th century authors, I'll just assume that, just assume that I'm forgot and I'm in a different podcast. I'm not going to stop you. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. That's fine. Uh, Sean's on a roll. Let him go for two hours (laughs) on Nathaniel Hawthorne. (laughs) I mean, it means that Mike Shea will send me some notes and I'll look forward to that. Exactly. Yes. Well, we always look forward to that. <laughs> yes. Speaking. Well, yes. Speaking of feedback, or actually speaking of great questions from Twitter, we got a question from Scott, Scott W. Gregson on Twitter. First of all, Scott, thank you for uh, reaching out to us and asking this wonderful question. It says, yeah. hey there, Sean and Alpha Stream. I just finished listening to your epic mastering D- D&D trawl through Frostmaiden. Question. Would you ever consider running the big crystal dragon as a chase? Launch it while the characters are in the mountain and have them go after it. And then he follows that up by like saying you could give them like drakes to fly or or something of that nature and turn it into a chase scene rather than what it is, which is a sort of find where the dragon's going to be and then fight it. And my answer to that is, I I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I think that's an awesome idea. Uh, and, you know, once that question came through, I started being being the designer brain that I am like, OK, how would we do this? What would be cool? What are the benefits of doing that? What would the players love about this as opposed to the way it is now? Uh, and I can think of a many, many great ways to turn this into a much different, not just encounter, but much different story than mm-hmm. the one that's laid out in the book. And I just finished uh, playing in a cross maiden campaign uh it's been going on forever but uh so this adventure is now fresh in my mind again because of that yeah that's really interesting the idea of like i I love that concept of like jumping on mounts like if instead of the the woman showing up with you know like hey get on my sled it was like you know get on my i don't know undead flying creatures um or any kind of creatures i think that'd be super cool or if you had a if you saw some sort of flying creatures around and you could approach them and sort of tame them and jump them sort of avatar movie star uh movie style and and you know get on them and go after that i think that'd be super cool i think that the thing with this scene right and we talked about this when we reviewed frost maiden is that it it's one of those cases where adventures give you a whole bunch of information that drives you down a certain way of doing it. Like I have to do some calculus to figure out where this dragon is and maybe the players aren't supposed to know about it. And and it's all jumbled up. Mm -hmm. And if you just step back, sometimes it's good to just go, what would I like this to be? Exactly. And and it's a great question to ask whenever you hit a weird situation where you're not understanding what the adventure is trying to do or if it feels at all weird, just say, well, what do I wish this was? And, And this is exactly the kind of thing that I think is awesome. Just say... I kind of wish it was a chase, you know, right. and I could see that'd be so cool to be flying through the 10 towns and, you know, it's laying waste to one town and maybe you've got to find how to get your attention. And yeah, I think all that is really neat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, to me, it all stems from the very beginning thing, which is it's unclear 
what the characters know when this scene first kicks off, whether they have proper information for what they can get payoff wise by going into the mountain or by going after the dragon. Right. And that's, that's a thing that I think, you know, bears addressing so that players feel smart about their choice. Right. Yeah. And you know, to piggyback on your, what do you want this to feel like? One of the benefits of the way it was written was it has this epic feel. It has this feel of, it's not just, we're saving one town, you know, we're possibly saving 10 towns and, and hundreds of people. So if you want to keep that feel, but get rid of the sort of questions about what's its root and where can you best meet with it and, and how do you follow it when it can fly and you can't, you know, this sort of, we have these mechanical drakes at our disposal now, and we can actually fly, maybe not at the same speed as this dragon, but enough that we can more easily find it and, and get to it. And as I was thinking about this, I'm like, maybe I would turn this into like a four step process. You know, the first step is you have to catch it and, and survive the first encounter with it. And then it flies away. The second step is, oh, while you were fighting it, you saw that there are joints where its wings meet its body. And if you can hit those with a right amount of damage, uh, it won't be able to fly anymore, but it will still be able to crawl. And if you Mm -hmm. could do that, then step three is meet it in the best location possible as it's crawling toward its next target. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now, now you're talking about you're keeping that epic nature and taking the sort of guesswork and a lot of calculation that the party might not be, you know, wanting to do or able to do based on the information they have. Yeah, that's that's an, that's another thing about this um, encounter that I think. When I think of what I want it to be, I want this dragon to be supremely epic. Mm-hmm. And stat block-wise, it isn't. And that right. that's a, a thing that I think would be really important. Like, it just can't be defeated just straight up. You must either find a weakness, like you just said, that's a great idea. Or I was thinking something like, you must rally the town where you are to overcome their, their fear and horror of this dragon sufficiently that they can harry it enough to give you a chance to, to affect it, right? Like it essentially requires some level of attacks being done to it so that it can be harmed, right? Yeah. Um, and there are a number of ways you can do that mechanically, but, but just I would want it to be a really epic thing, not, not as we've seen in some of the live streams or reports from people playing it where it just it goes down really quickly, especially mm-hmm. if you own the miniature like I do, and it's right. this enormous big miniature that's expensive like i want that thing to last and be very very memorable (laughs) yeah yeah so you know there's a lot of ways you can adjust it and a chase you know could be not necessarily even the whole thing the the chase could be the first part or even the last part of the of the scene and the sort of encounter story narrative that you're trying to set up yeah super cool yeah so thank you again scott for that uh for that question And if you would like to ask a question of us, you can do so on Twitter as well. And we'll give you all our contact information at the end of the show. So let's get on to our news and commentary section. Hey, I heard there was a spell survey. (laughs) Yes, I I did it last night. And uh, oh, my gosh. I mean, halfway through, I was like, wow, I love D&D so much that I will give all of my free labor to this survey that I don't even know if I believe in fully, but I'm going to try. Yeah. I mean, I think the link came out 
right after we finished recording last week. So yeah. I, I put the link out there. Hey, Teos, let's, we should give this news. And then you know, a few days ago, I clicked on it just to say, okay, I'm going to do it. And then I was like, no, no, I'm not. Uh, yeah. You know, God bless everyone who went through and, yeah. and took the entire thing. But tell us about the survey, Teos. So basically it asks, um, it goes through player handbook, handbook spells alphabetically asking you to rate how satisfied you are with them. So because it's alphabetical, you can kind of go through, but you know, it means you're jumping around levels and stuff. Um, and you can say, you know, I love it, I hate it, everything in between, or I don't know anything about this spell. Then after you've gone through all of that, and it's not all the spells, but it's it feels like most spells, and then it'll drop some chunks. So I don't know if that was like a survey design thing where like, you know, a bunch of spells just are stripped from a particular person but fed to someone else, or if these were spells that they maybe think they already know they need to fix or don't need to fix. I don't know. Um, but when I went through the survey, I did, you know, all these spells, and then it asked me all the same exact spells that I had before. Do, have you ever used them as a player or DM or I haven't ever used them, mm -hmm. which was sort of funny to think through because, you know, I play and DM a lot. So trying to think of which ones I'd used and which, and it brought back actually a lot of fun memories. So I liked right. that part of it. Um, <laughs> then it asked, do you want to rate more spells? And at that point I laughed out loud <laughs> and uh, clicked no, uh, because that had already been a lot of time investment. Um, so maybe you can actually rate everything. Um, my worry with this, Sean was, what kind, and maybe this is okay survey, survey design wise, you might see, you know, spikes on both ends, but I, I worried about how people answer these things, right? Because like, for example, as a player, I absolutely adore casting the cleric spell aid mm -hmm. increases your, your hit points by a maximum, uh, amount, your hit point maximum by an amount, and you can upcast it for just tremendous, uh, durability, survivability increases the players you do it on love it. Um, but it's a, bit strong in a game where monsters sort of already don't threaten you it's mm -hmm. almost guaranteed survival in, in an intangible way that neither player nor dm fully comprehend right. so as a player i love it it makes me feel good it makes other people at the table feel good as a designer it's a little too strong you know and so right. what do i rate it super love it medium yeah you know it was really hard to think through some of those things yeah and you know, you would hope that then they ask you if you've used it as a player in a DM, they can collate that to say, well, you know, Maybe. DMs really hate this spell, but really the players really love this spell. That's and true. that delta between the love from the players and the hate from the DMs should be a good indication of where that spell ends yep. up. Yep. But yeah, I mean, as, as we learned last time when we went through the spells from Fizzbands, right? There's, there's a lot to unpack with certain spells. Yeah. Right? Fireball is fireball. Right. It does a lot of damage. You know what it's going to do. And then there's the sort of ones that do damage plus. And yeah. what? how does that work? And is everything incapacitated when I'm done? Yeah. And, you know, and th it, those, those questions. And even things like Eldritch Blast, right? Like it's totally fundamentally fine option. Right. But warlocks have the larger issue that it can be so boring to just see Eldritch Blast used right. relentlessly yeah. because it's optimal. And so there's nothing fundamentally wrong with Eldritch Blast, but Warlock, it's like, I want to have a conversation, not rate this, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like Toll the Dead. You know, why are life clerics all casting Toll the Dead? Well, 
because it's yeah. a D12 if the yeah. enemy's injured. So that's everyone's going to use it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, last I checked, it was still up. I don't know if it will still be yeah. up when the show drops. It should still be. Uh, but it should. So you can check that out. There is a link in our show notes. An article by Chris Tulak called uh, Pillars of Organized Play is up on the D&D website. For those of you who don't know, Chris Tulak is the head of organized play at Wizards of the Coast, and he's blogging about basically what drives organized play. What are th- some things that they think about when they create these experiences and communities? Uh, Chris has been working at Wizards for a very long time. He and I came up through the RPGA and through the Living Greyhawk campaign at practically the same time. And, uh, you know, even before that campaign had ended, uh, Chris had been hired at Wizards of the Coast to work on organized play. He's worked for uh, for their events team. He's worked on magic. He's worked on a ton of different things there. So he has a great depth and breadth of experience with all sorts of games and with all sorts of organized play uh, options. Yeah, so, one of the he, sharpest minds at yeah. this subject. I mean, he invented D&D Encounters, right? Which yep. was him refining an earlier program that he'd invented. So it, it's a, uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And he was in charge of the Adventures League when it started. Then he moved on to work on a different, with a different team. But now he's back working with uh, the Adventures League again. So, yeah, that, that's who he is. And so let's go through some of what he talked about. Um, you want to take the first one? Yeah, so the first thing he talked about was community, uh, his, his three pillars, uh, or his two pillars, I guess it is. Um, and community, he says, is made up of really sort of three pieces, shared experiences. And he says that surveys show this is a really big one as to what draws people to organize play. Uh, when you think of a home group and you're sharing this with the people at your table, you go from that to sharing it with a much larger community, all these different tables, and you can all talk about you know the adventure and how you did and the epic and all these various things and so that's a reason that people join organized play recognition that similarly you now have a much larger group that can talk about you know did you were you able to defeat the than wizard did you find the magic item did you find the secret door um and all of those things that you achieve including in big events like epics are then recognized by a large group of peers mm-hmm. and the third part of community is peer enrichment learning and mentoring you learn faster when playing with strangers. You get different perspectives, approaches, and tools every time that you play at a different table. It allows for much faster growth and learning. And, he, and then he kind of talks about the flip side, with that, which I thought was really good, that when you're a veteran, you then have all these opportunities to mentor, and that can be very rewarding. For sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, all of those things are things that we've talked about before, and especially that enrichment part, the learning. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you play with your home group, you can have a great time and you can learn things. But what you learn from playing with other DMs and running for other players is, uh, you know, multifold of of just a running for one table. And then he talks about another pillar, which is the content. And he talks about uh, bite-sized play. So Adventures League is often divided up into smaller what you used to call modules, what we call adventures in, in a two to four hour format. And that offers a very reliable experience. Uh, 
yeah, they can feel the adventures can feel more like a TV episode than a really long movie where you can tune in next time for another chapter in the story, either of your character or for linked uh, adventures you know, of the ongoing narrative. Um, and I really love that because sometimes, yeah. you know, when you're a, when you run like for a home group, you get all excited about the hard, the latest hardcover that's come out. And then you get two episodes in and you're like, well, I don't know if we're going to be able to finish this. Yeah. People's, people's you know, attention starts to lag. Whereas these yeah. short adventures, you can finish them. And then even if someone needs to drop out or if, if it doesn't go well, you can switch gears and, and sort of change the story. Whereas if you are in this longer uh, narrative, if you're in a longer adventure, it makes it harder to do that. For me, it was like um, the difference between having, say, cable TV back that we grew up with yeah. and then having on-demand oh, viewing, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, in that I could suddenly go from a home campaign where I was supposed to be there every week and I couldn't because I traveled for work to, hey, play, you know, chapter two, episode one. And when you want ready to play episode two, you can with a whole different group. But you, you, you know, watch yeah. the next episode, participate in the next episode. And that was really game changing for me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the second part of content he talks about is the feedback loop, where the adventure that you play will influence uh, what your character is and does. And then what the characters do can influence the future story. Now, Chris is honest about the challenges of this, because that's one of the big selling points of organized play for some people. It's, oh, everything that you do can affect the longer story. And people are thinking like their exploits are going to be in novels down the road. And that's not necessarily... <laughs> It's it's a goal, but it's a goal that's almost impossible to achieve without so much uh, so much overhead. So what Chris says is, we want this to be a stronger feature within our uh, Adventurers League, but there are challenges with regards to production cycles and implementing feedback. On average, an adventure takes about six months to produce in our current cycle, meaning that feedback we receive couldn't see implementation until half a year later. Uh, we're going to experiment with other ways to deliver on this in the future, include, including broadening feedback intake, because it's an important part of the organized play experience. And, you know, we've been involved in many, many different kinds of organized play programs, mm -hmm. uh, some where your, your input, your, the things that you do have absolutely no effect on it, to having a great effect, depending on uh, the size of the campaign and the scope of the campaign. So... You know, it's it's something that organized play is always aware of and always keen to enhance. Uh, but there has to be patience uh, and a lot of experimentation. Yeah. And the last part of content is the ease of use for DMs. Um, the adventures are written in a way and are formatted in a way that they can be run with minimal prep, which is great for newer DMs, great for DMs that don't have a lot of time. Uh, with a consistent structure, it makes them easier to parse and you can rerun them so that the experience is easier and better each time you run it, since you could be running it for many different players and tables. Good stuff. I mean, and Chris says all of this will help guide play going forward and, and that it, these things help him talk internally to other Wizards of the Coast team members about viewing organized plays more than marketing and, and as something that's important to D&D &D players overall, which is really cool, right? 
And that's what I, one of the things I love about Chris is he has that larger view of what organized play can accomplish both for the company and for the community. So I look forward to seeing where this goes and what that means. You know, what are they cooking back there in, at, at Wizards? It'll be yeah. really interesting to see. Yep. Uh, so that that's on the Yawning Portal site, yawningportal.dnd.wizards.com. And there's also an interview with Travis Woodall, the uh, content manager uh, and Adventurers League administrator that you can catch there. Very cool. Uh, Dragon Plus issue 40. I did not get a chance to look at this, so I'm going to let Teos tell us all about it. Well, uh, a big, an enormous chunk of it is marketing. <laughs> That's always true, but this is especially true. It's like a gift guide for the holidays. Uh, so if you want to see, you know, that you can buy a D20 umbrella or dice jails or you name it, uh, all your T-shirts, all the links, all that stuff is there, sort of separated by price. Have at it. Shop away. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting is we didn't, in, in past, I think last year talked about how they had a thing in the UK called the dragon annual, which is a hardback book published in the UK that sort of, uh, kind of introduces D and D it's sort of a weird intro kind of book. It, it sort of talks about streaming shows and just sort of, if you didn't know what D and D offered, this would be a book that goes over it and completionists were kind of like, Oh, well, I can't get this. How would I ever get this? So it's actually available through Amazon now and also last year's. Um, it is what it is. This is not a book that's going to be full of useful content. It's just sort of a fun book. But if you are a completionist, you can now get it. Um, there's also an article on the upcoming Call of the Netherdeep Critical Role book, which comes out in March. The Best of DMs Guild has a free copy of 24 Faith Familiars, a supplement by Rob Moore and David Perfect. There's also an interview with Andrew Bishkinski, of, who won the DMs Challenge, as we reported before, and some other product highlights. Maps of the month include Candlekeep Mysteries, some layers from Fizzbands, and the Biblioplex Library from Strixhaven, which comes out tomorrow, something like that, this week. Mm -hmm. um, and an interview with James Wyatt about Fizzband, and an interview with author Madeleine Rue, writer of Dungeon Academy No Humans Allowed, which is a book for middle school kids. So it's awesome. a you know, yeah. mixed bag there. There's also a survey, so you can tell them what you think about Dragon Plus. Uh, and I think you can win, sort of interesting, it says you can win a f one of the Tiamat figures, so you know I did this survey. <laughs> but then when you click on the link, it says you can win 50 bucks. And I'm like, those two things are not the same. <laughs> no. You could buy, what, one-eighth or one-sixth <laughs> one of the Tiamat. Yes. We could buy one of the heads of the Tiamat <laughs> mini. Can I get a wing? Yeah. So, so uh, you took the uh, survey 27 times under I, 27 <laughs> different names? Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. That's what I'd like to do. All right. Uh, so Twitter got into the business side of the industry as uh, people were encouraged. People in the industry were encouraged to share their salaries. Uh, this was primarily surrounding video games where they're attempting to make a more level playing field with uh you know industry employees seeing if they are being paid fairly but an associate game designer on D D. that was was this on a wizards person or yeah okay yeah, a wizards, wizards person yeah, wizards an associate game designer said that their salary was seventy one thousand. and uh this tweet tweet was quoted by a map maker who makes two thousand a year and a copywriter who's making forty six thousand a year uh so it you know will it's it, it's good to bring all this into perspective as a, as an industry. So we can make sure people are getting paid what 
they're worth and yeah. what they deserve and to let the people who purchase things know, let the customers know, you know, that this is still a pretty cheap hobby in terms of mm -hmm. the hours that you spend with the material that you're purchasing. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that will also become more equitable uh, in the long run. Yeah, and there'd been an article um, that came out, and I forget who published it, but uh, but there, one of the online magazine type places uh, published an article about sort of bad pay practices, primarily at Paizo, but also at Wizards. And, and I had the opportunity to speak to a couple of Wizards employees at a convention, and they said eh, that was kind of tough because they said both companies, then produced a lot of really bad numbers for Paizo, and then just had some freelancers that had worked for wizards that said, you know, we didn't like this thing or the other, but it wasn't necessarily pay. Yeah. And, and so they felt that was a little unfair. So hearing this number of 71,000 come out, that's about double the numbers that were being quoted by the Paizo oh, people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a lot better. Right. And, and, and I think you can see maybe why wizards people were a little kind of like, well, that was a little unfair to us, but honestly, I mean, we're talking about salaries in Seattle. So uh, I, th I think, you know, they need to be higher in a place like that. Uh, and, and so, but it's an interesting data point and it'll be interesting to see if we get more and more of this sort of transparency. I hope we do. Um, because as you said, there's a lot of work being done here by hard work, talented work, and people pay poorly for it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that 71,000 figure is right in the ballpark of the last designer position that I applied for at Wizards a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. Uh, it wasn't an associate. I think it was a, like a senior, more senior level. And it was more than that, but it was you know, at that yeah. level. So that's at least, it's at least livable, even in Seattle. Right. Uh, so that's, right. that's good. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it's, I've heard of higher salaries um, that, you know, I'm not at liberty to share higher mm -hmm. salaries in the, the, uh, in the industry. You know, so certainly this is not some high mark. And, and what, what is nice is this is an associate game designer, right? And we've seen recently, right. like, there's a current job opening for a, a higher place game designer. So one presumes that that would pay more. Right. You know, unclear, but. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that industry news as it unfolds. Uh, the DMs Guild is now offering tracking URLs. Uh, thanks to fans requesting it, the DMs Guild now allows creators to track how customers are finding their titles by adding marketing sources to the URLs. Now, this was something that you could do on the other side, uh, the other side of OBS drive through RPG, but the DMS guild didn't allow it. And now it is. And there was just a, a product that I worked on that was maybe selling two copies every week. Xanathar's lost notes to everything else in the last four days has averaged like 25 sales a day and for for several days in a row and i have hmm. no idea why yeah if we had had this back then we might be able to tell what was going wow. on yeah, uh, because i'm asking the other writers on the book and everyone's like i have no idea why this is so <laughs> i don't know if it was mentioned on a you know a podcast on a show if it, the link got out there i yeah. just have no idea that's so interesting yeah. Yeah. So go to the my content promotion tools section of the site to find the tool and instructions on how to use it. Yep. 
Uh, so if you are introducing new players to role-playing games, Cobalt Press has some great advice for you on how to teach combat to new players. Uh, and what it does is it encourages you to work narrative into these early lessons. So rather than just tell the players, roll a d20, and if they hit, you describe the hit, and if they miss, you describe the miss, it sort of has them describe what they're doing and then why the die roll produces certain results. Uh, what, what did you think of the article? Yeah, I thought that was great advice. And it's something you don't often hear, right? You'll hear things like, you know, having to make a skill check first, then a simple combat, that kind of advice. And so this about really saying like, okay, when they roll a thing, to ask them like, what does your ranger do? That, that, you know, describe how this looks and to get them into that at the very beginning, right? That part of the training isn't just look at this part of your character sheet, but then tell me what you're doing and what's the kind of tactic you're doing. Be descriptive about it. That's a really cool um, advice. I, I really like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is interesting to, to tackle new ways to teach new players. Uh, I found that when I was teaching players who had never played in my role-playing writing for role-playing games class. Uh, I started doing that, but also sort of delving into the mechanics of why the math is working the way it is, which you wouldn't want to do with new players who are just players, but mm -hmm. it, that was a completely different way then of teaching new players because you're teaching them design <laughs> while you're teaching them the game, yeah. which is, which is an interesting way to come at it. That's cool. So what's this about Brizzy's Voices? <laughs> so there is a YouTube channel called Brizzy Voices, and she is incredibly talented and does all kinds of voices from different shows and things like that. But she also, in this episode, I think it might be her second one on it, does the sounds of various creatures from the Monster Manual and other books. So she does the Abyssal Chicken. She does an amazing flail snail where she like holds onto her cheeks and, you know, makes this very funny sort of watery noise. And then uh, she does the flump. Before the flump, she says, all right, I've got to cheat. And so she, she dual, you know, you see her twice on the screen. And in one screen, she's doing this sort of like the outgassing. And then she's yeah. doing the voice all at the same time. It's really hilarious. Oh, um, and what's cute about it is is she shows like, you know, the the tweet or whatever it is that's saying hey please do this creature and when it comes to the flump the 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 screen just fills with flump requests <laughs> which i thought was just a plus for my book all right well of course uh Teos is going to <laughs> they, find the they were voice not of old. the flump they, they were, were not all me, you. i swear <laughs> all the accounts that you use to take the survey on, on a dragon plus you also were calling for flump sounds oh that's great hey you want a free short adventure Involved with Strixhaven? Sure. Yes, yes, I Why do. not? Well, you can get one on D&D Beyond. Uh, Michael Galvis has a short adventure providing insights into the upcoming Strixhaven book. Um, since the D&D Beyond staff gets to see these products before they release, this has information from the book in the adventure. Uh, the map seems to also come from the adventure as well, as, as does some of the art. Uh, what's in the adventure, you ask? Well, Teos, I'm asking you. Well, yeah. So it's kind of cool because it's like it really gives you an insight into what we're going to get from Strixhaven before we've even seen the book. Um, you are working, which we've sort of maybe heard if you've attuned to these things, that you can get a job 
and your students, right, in this adventure. And so you get a job as baristas at a coffee shop on campus called the Fire Jolt Cafe. And we get a map of the place and you have to prepare the place in time for customers. I think your boss is like asleep or something. And of course, there are unexpected problems, you know, like the coffee machine has a creature in it. And uh, and then once the place finally opens, if you've gotten it all prepped, you still have to use various skills to serve everybody properly. And and it's pretty well done scenario. I think this is an example. If you're thinking like, man, you know, do I want to sort of have this sort of game? This is probably good insight into the kind of silly, fun scenarios you could run with it. So I thought mm-hmm. it was pretty good. Yeah. A little work study uh, action yeah. going on at Strict <laughs> It brought me back. Yep. There you go. So that is available on D&D Beyond. PAX Unplugged. It is happening. Uh, by the time this show drops, it will be probably starting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, what will we see at PAX Unplugged? We will see the farewell panel of the C-Team, as well as the C-Team epilogue. I'm not crying. Uh, you're crying. And Jeremy Crawford will retake his seat as the DM in the Acquisitions Incorporated live game, which is Saturday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, The con does require both vaccinations and masks. So if you do go, be be sure you're vaccinated. Be sure to mask up. And, you know, take care of yourselves if you do attend. Very cool. Wish I was there. Last but not least, speaking of you being there, you were on the most recent Dragon Talk talking about how to DM using patrons. Mm-hmm. I so took t- everything Sean said, and I said it again. That's right. <laughs> because, <laughs> well, I, I doubt that's the case. But we did talk about uh, using patrons for your games on our May 13th podcast. So you can go back and listen to that, or you can get it in uh, in extra special Teos version with a little Shelly Mazenoble thrown in for good measure instead of me. So I would take that uh, that over over our show. But you can well, see that at uh, dnd.wizards.com, Dragon Talk. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a joy to be on there with Shelly. She's, she's so nice. Uh, she's the kindest person. And, um, and she is now running a campaign. You know, this, this how, to D, how to be a DM segment has often been her, like, it's almost like encourage Shelly to run. But she ended up running for some friends of her from... Uh, friends of her sons right uh that are in school or neighbors or something but it's all kids you know younger kids and um and she tells some very fun stories about this table that she's been running but but it involves actually what essentially is a patron so we talked about how to use that and it was a lot of fun yep so that is the news and now we can hop on over to our main topic which is going to be i believe part four now of our look at fizz bands treasury of dragons uh last week we finished off chapter one covering the spells and now we're going to get on to chapter two and talk about magic items so lots and lots of new magic items well actually not a lot of new magic items unless you think 13 is a lot but they are very powerful magic items for the most part and the more powerful you get the trickier it is to make it work. So (laughs) I will give the standard warning that I give about once every three or four episodes. If we seem negative about this, it's not that we are picking on the designers. It's not that we uh, hate Wizards of the Coast. It's not that we hate magic items. 
Uh, these are just very tricky things that we as designers, when we read, sit down and break down and ponder and try to come up with alternatives or try to see if there might be problems uh, that would pop up in a game. So you know, as we do that, we're doing this out of love, not out of hate. Yep, that All is right. true. So uh, let's start with the Amethyst Lodestone. It is a very rare magic item as most of these or many of these are. It has six charges and it regains 1d6 charges at dawn. What can you do with this lodestone? For one charge, you can fly for 10 minutes at a speed equal to your walking speed. All right, with a very rare object, that makes total yep. sense. Um, for one charge, you can choose one target. They need to make a DC 18 strength saving throw or be pushed 20 feet in a direction of your choice. Now, when I see pushed in a direction of your choice, my first thought is always, can you push them up into the air? And normally with an item like this, you cannot. Normally you can only push horizontally. But what is this little charge called? It's called gravitational thrust, which then makes me think, huh. Why gotta defy gravity? Yes, you if it's gravitational thrust, you probably should be able to push something up into the air with that. And it's only 20 feet, and it is a very rare item. So I would say, sure, why not? But you're right. It probably, given what how D&D 5e has operated, right. it really should say. Right. And all you have to say is push vertically or horizontally. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just adding one word if it's, if it's only vertical or t- three words, vertical or horizontal, uh, if it is up, down, left, right, back, forth, whatever. Uh, and the final thing you can do with it for three charges is cast reverse gravity. That you can obviously push up. <laughs> the only way you can go is up. Uh, yep. So and overall, no no major problems with this as a very rare item. Uh, seems totally within the scope of of powerful enough to to be very useful, especially if you can't fly using other methods, uh, but not overpowered. Yep, I like Any, it. Okay, cool. Uh, second is the Crystal Blade. And I added this one uh, because I wanted to talk about it. Any sword can can uh, be a Crystal Blade, and it requires attunement, and it's rare. When you hit with an attack roll, you could add 1d8 radiant damage to the attack every time. Okay. Um, you can use a charge, and it has three charges total that recharge at dawn. If you use a charge, you can regain hit points equal to that extra radiant damage that you dealt with the attack. 1d8, rare. All right, not not too not too powerful. Um, not at all. But if you crit, you would then do 2d8, which then you would probably say, oh, well, in that case, I will use a charge because I'm getting back 1d8 instead of 2d8. Uh, I had a question that popped up as I was reading these now at this point. In some magic items, it says it recharges after a long rest. Some items, it says it recharges at dawn or at midnight or at other times. Mm-hmm. Why are we differentiating between those <laughs> two? Is is, the, is there a design reason to do it? Or is it just something that people, whatever they're feeling at the time, they do? Yeah, It appears in the DMG, you know, 
that this sort of difference. And so my guess is it was a design decision to sort of inject some flavor into it, right? And, and you tend to see this, that anything radiant will say recharging at dawn. And if it's anything that's sort of necrotic, dark, evil, it'll be, you know, sort of at midnight or, or at dusk or, or at long rest. Uh, and then the default seems to be long rest as well. So yeah. it sounds like it's just sort of flavor. Okay. Your question also made me think, why so many, I mean, at least they say any sword, but why is it all about swords? Like, I just feel like the game shoves you into using a long sword and a great sword always for everything. Yeah. And why not just any weapon? Like, why isn't it crystal weapon? And so, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's, we, we, it's, yeah, I've said my piece. Yeah, no, it's, I think that makes perfect sense. And obviously, you know, if for some reason they, they're thinking bullet, blades or crystal can't be bludgeoning because it'll break uh you could just as easily say any slashing or piercing weapon i guess um yeah yeah crystal spear why not the, like the only you... thing i began to think of was they they say they say you know recharge at dawn or recharge at midnight or recharge at wherever because players technically could pass the item <laughs> Use it in the morning. I don't know. Use it. Use it in the morning. Use all the charges. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, try to get around attunement things. It's like I can because it requires mm. attunement. So you would. Yeah, I, I was just trying to like. Yeah, could you game it? Game it in some way, but I'm sure people w would and have tried, and that's why the only reason I would leave it as after a long rest is you know to keep that from happening but that's when you could do it right you could pass it on to someone else they could attune to it in the same day because all you need is a short rest to attune and then yeah, they could you can only you can only enjoy the benefits of a long rest once per 24 hours so you can't game a long rest what you could do is you could travel to a world that has a dawn right yeah. And to get an extra dawn, right? So like the Feywild often has a place that's always at dawn or yeah. always at dusk. So you yeah. could technically go to the Feywild, recharge this item at dawn, come back yeah. and enjoy another dawn. Yep. I, I was sick of the same thing too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or it's the, the land of the midnight sun where it's always midnight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, just, just a little game design thing that popped mm -hmm. into my head as I was reading these over. Um, next was the Dragonhide Belt, an uncommon, uh, rare, or very rare item, depending on the bonus of plus one, plus two, or plus three. This is a monk item that grants a bonus to saving your saving throw DCs against your key features. Mm. And uh, I'm going to let Teos take this one. <laughs> Just because we got well, to mm, I mean, already. Yeah. The, the obvious thing here is that stunning strike or stunning fist is already a problem and so because you can stun boss monsters and it's and, and you can do it many times and so it's a way to either get rid of legendary resistances burn through them or stun your bosses that don't have them and then like the game just becomes uh your monster is a punching bag it's a foregone conclusion and so now increasing the dc makes it just even worse yeah. So, so this is the kind of thing that a lot of DMs, I think, will just go, ooh, no, please no. 
Um, whereas on the other hand, a four elements monk that feels weak to a lot of people, this would be a lovely item to give to them right? because that, they could use that little lift up. Um, so I just, you know, I would probably house rule this. And I think a lot of DMs would to just not allow it to be used for sunning strike. Now, a lot of monks like the, uh, dwarven belt, uh, because it boosts things as well, mm-hmm. uh, does sort of the same thing while, while I'm giving a beard. But, um, <laughs> but I just, I was surprised that they designed this. It's one of those things you go, really? Wow. I, do you not see the tables that I see? Maybe not. And, and, you know, maybe it's just, Hey, options are options. You don't have to use them. Right. But I thought it was yeah. sort of surprising. Yep. This is the yeah. kind of thing that like, you know, what I think really hurts is that you'll see this and you're like, Ooh, that's weird. Who would use that? And you play an adventures league adventure and it's like dragon hide belt plus three. And you're like, Oh, <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. And then every table has yep. the monk with uh, uh-huh. plus three to their DCs. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah, it's it's not a problem with this item. It's a problem with what this item allows certain uh, certain know, classes to to do at certain times. So, you know, it's not that you need to fix the belt. It's that you need to fix the the stunning, or mm-hmm. you need to fix the being able to spend all your key points in the same battle and always get them back uh, without having to save that resource for something later yep Yep. uh next item is the dragon lance guess what dragon lance confirmed (laughs) uh not not the setting the weapon not the setting no yeah so dragon lance it can be a lance or a pike i guess you would call the dragon pike if it was a pike Uh, it is a legendary item it is an item that has a plus three to attack and damage rolls and if you hit a dragon with it it does plus 3d6 force damage and a dragon of your choice that you can see within 30 feet can immediately use its reaction to make a melee attack. Wow. Yep. So this is this is the dragon lance. It That's is, legendary. That's cool. It, it is the, we are going to have good dragons fighting evil dragons, and one of the dragons is on our side, so we're going to have it do stuff. Um, I, I do like magic items like this that basically give you an adventure, right? Like you're like, oh, yeah. okay, I'm going to... You know, the, the, they'll be met by these allies who will give them dragon lances, lend them to them so they can mount the dragons. And okay, <laughs> yeah, yep, gotta exactly. do that. Yeah, and and what's interesting to me is it's a legendary item, but it sounds like you can make many, many, many of them. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it that's it, obviously they're going by the lore of the book, yeah, and the books. But it is just odd to me, like legendary. Oh, there's only one. Yeah, any any lancer pike can be it, and you, it's made from this special metal. And okay, dragon lances and dragon pikes for everyone. Pretty sweet. Uh, the dragon wing bow. This one caught my attention for a lot of different reasons. Uh, so what this is is if you have no ammo in the weapon, it produces its own. And I think back to the 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 cartoon, right? Yeah, you just totally. you, don't, you don't need a string and you don't need uh, any ammo. You just you drop mm-hmm. back and it shoots out this uh, missile. It, so any any bow can be a dragon wing bow. It's rare, requires attunement. When you hit with an attack roll using this bow, the target takes an extra one d six damage of the type of the breath infused into the bow. So you know, black dragon 
wing bow, it would be acid damage, etc. Mm -hmm. cool. So, and if you load no ammo into the weapon, it produces its own, automatically creating one piece of magic ammunition when you pull back the string. The ammunition ammunition created by the bow vanishes the instant after it hits or misses a target. So flavorful. I love this. You know, I love having watched that cartoon as a kid. I love this. Mm -hmm. Every edition of D&D that I DM'd, I made one of these things where you pull it back and it shoots electricity. It shoots fire. It shoots something different. Here's the problem. Uh, well, problem number one. Any bow, meaning a long or crossbow, can also be a dragon wing bow. And you don't need to load it. So what, what slows down people using light crossbows or heavy crossbows? It's that loading thing. You technically don't need to load this. So I don't know that any bow includes crossbows. If you go to D&D Beyond and you look at dragon wing bow, yeah, all, it light crossbow and heavy crossbow are listed huh. under it. Because okay. I thought the same thing. Yeah, I'm Like, surely they don't mean crossbow. Then the other question is when it says it produces its own, I don't know that that means that you're not loading, but that's your, the wording is weird. I'm if you that. load no ammunition into the weapon, but I don't know that you're getting rid of the requirement to load. Like right. it, it, I, I, I agree. Right. As you know. a DM, I'm like, no, you're, st you're still loading yeah. it, but, but the wording you, is you, mm -hmm. the wording makes it, it says if you load no ammunition, you know, this is this is the best item because it takes us back to flashbacks of like letters to the editor of Dragon Magazine. Because yeah. because yeah. talk about your last point here, which I love. Right. So it also says, uh, you know, if you pull back the uh, you when you pull back the string, it creates one piece of magical ammunition, which vanishes after it hits or misses a target. So what is stopping me from pulling back the bow? creating this piece of ammunition, setting it down, pulling back the bow, creating another piece of ammunition, setting it down, and creating 500 pieces of magic ammunition. If right. I'm using and it, a longbow, it's going to be says, arrows, right? It doesn't, while the target takes damage of a type, it doesn't say the ammunition is of the type, but it says it's magic. So it would work on creatures only affected by magic. Precisely. So this is like the coolest magic ammunition production factory ever right. yeah you're being you know you're being attacked by d demons or devils mm -hmm. get hand 10 magical pieces of ammunition to all your soldiers yeah and you are now getting through that uh magic resistance or immunity yeah. to non-magical weapons so i mean again it just as Love a it. dm i would say no <laughs> But as a you know, as a DM, I also know that certain players out there are going to be, and and the problem is, if you're running like organized play where it's not the same players week after week, you will get some players to just assume, based on the wording, that they can do this. So they'll come mm -hmm. to the table, and they'll say, "Okay, everybody, I'm going to give you all twenty arrows. These are magical arrows. They don't do extra damage, but they're magical in case you need them." And, and as you know, you're looking at your watch and you're running a two hour game, you don't have the time to sit down and say, Hey, Fred, how did you get a hundred arrows that are magical? And then, you know, he, well, 
it says in the Dragonwing bow that, and you don't have time to do this at a at a uh, time sensitive event. I mean, it's clear that Hank the Ranger was a cheese monkey. Yes, who abused the system. Now we Ex- know this exactly. Exactly. Uh, so that's the Dragonwing bow. Really cool. Just keep those little oddities in mind. Yeah. Um, the Emerald Pen. This is this is where I live right here. The Emerald Pen requires no ink to write. While holding the pen, you can cast Illusionary Script at will, requiring no material components. Short, sweet, to the point, uh, to, to the to the nib, and I'm I'm all about the Emerald Pen. Very cool. Yep. The most powerful magic, uh, powerful weapon in the game, maybe the Flail of Tiamat. Tell us about it, Teos. Ooh, this is a juicy one. This is the kind of thing you read and you just oh wait, there's more. Plus mm-hmm. three to attack and damage. When you hit, always, it does 5d4 extra damage of a type you choose at that time. Acid, cold, fire, lightning, or poison. Uh, once per day, you can use an action to have the heads of the flail of Tiamat, Tiamat breathe. 90-foot cone, DC 18 dexterity save. 14d6 damage of the type you choose, or half on a save. Yeah. Uh, I wrote here in the comments, slow clap. Yeah. I'm hoping this was like a very rare item, I assume. It's, it's legendary. Okay, it's legendary. Yeah, that, it is that, legendary. But I mean, it's still like, I mean, there's some legendary items there. Like, yeah, okay, that'd be cool to have. This is like, uh, if my DM gives me this, I suppose yeah. I have to marry them? Yeah. Well, this is one of those where it starts in the enemy's hands, right? <laughs> yes. and, and you have to go through a lot if you want to get this. And then even then, once you start using it, Tiamat's going to be talking to you. <laughs> well, the, that's the thing the about this item. Time. I think, and, and I, I think Tribality mentioned this because I always look at what they say about, you know, various power creep and things. They sort of mention like, shouldn't this be intelligent? Like this should have oh, yeah. a, 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 you know, characteristics and so on. And that was sort of surprising that it doesn't have that because it yeah. feels like it really needs some lore and some personality to it and an ego that pushes mm-hmm. your player i mean oh yeah totally I, i'm using this weapon it's starting in the hands of a bad guy you're not even touching it to level 14 15 16 around there and then once you get it it's powerful you but you're probably going to wish you didn't have it by the time <laughs> the campaign ends yeah for sure all right let's talk about the gold canary figurine of wondrous power you know it's just this giant canary it's got a CR one half stat block that you can use for up to eight hours once per day. Hooray. Or, you know, if you're missing half or more of your hit points, it be- can become an adult gold dragon for up to an hour. <laughs> I actually love it because it comes to the limitation that you can do that one yep. only once per year. Yeah. And this is actually, I think, a really fun design idea, right? Like design a really powerful thing that's basically like a one shot. Mm-hmm. But then throw in a common use that you can do all the time, right? Yeah. Or the other way around, something really common that's an everyday thing, like you know that that emerald pen, right? What if you gave it some really amazing thing right. once a year? Like that's actually a real. I like I like this design space, and I yeah. and I when I saw this, I'm like, oh, I'm making a note of this for the future. Yeah, like you can write out a wish once per year. Yeah, sort of the like the pen. staff of power, the old retributive retributive strike yeah. where you break it and boom, yeah. you know, like that's just a, such a neat. Just knowing you have that one option to gold canary or adult gold dragon. Yes. I'm going to become an adventurer. I'm only going to adventure once per year. 
and I'm coming <laughs> with my friend Goldie. What do you guys do? We go back to the tavern for a year. For a year, exactly. Oh well, it's 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 a fun campaign. <laughs> All right, uh, platinum scarf. As an action, you can pull a scale from this scarf and speak a command word. When you do so, you can choose one of the following effects. Um, you or a creature you touch regains 10d4 hit points. Cool. Uh, I love this. I hate rolling d4s. Just tactilely, they're hard to pick up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, I, and I, I understand why they're used. 10 of them. Yeah. I understand why they're used. Uh, because it flattens that curve of, of yeah. uh, you know, math wise, but I, boy, I would just say I'm gonna roll five d eight if you don't buy it because, and, and just... it's like they love doing healing as sort of d four for whatever reason in potions and things. So I guess it's yeah. sort of off of that. But it is, yeah, it's it's almost like let's roll forty four plus a number or something. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, that was the first use. The second use is for one hour or until you dismiss it. The scale becomes a plus one shield which you or another creature can use, a creature wielding the shield, has immunity to radiant damage. Um, so you attune to the scarf, which is a legendary item, but anyone can use this shield that is the scale that you pull off the scarf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's fine. The only thing that I would sort of gnaw at as the DM is you're fighting a monster that only does radiant damage, and you're like, okay, one, two, three. Now we're all immune to radiant damage, uh, and you're, you know, you're using your entire yeah. complement of scales for that day. But it's, uh, yeah, because this item lets you choose any three scales, and at that point, you can't do more until dawn when right. they all grow back. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. You, it could be a little harsh with that. Immunity is, yeah, immunity is a lot. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's a legendary thing, but being able to do something so specific at such a granular level mm-hmm. is just a little much for me. But that's just me. Um, the final use for one hour or until you dismiss it, the scale becomes a magic light hammer, which you or another creature can use. The weapon deals two d four radiant damage instead of bludgeoning damage normal normally done by the light hammer. And it deals an extra 2d4 radiant damage against chromatic dragons. Nah, I mean, at, at, when you ha- get a legendary item, even if you're fighting a chromatic dragon doing 8d8, or I'm sorry, 4d4 radiant damage doesn't seem like a heck of a lot. No. Uh, so, yeah, it's hard to say why this was there. Yeah. It's a weird yeah. feature. You know, it when I when I read things like this, it almost part of me wonders: Is there a a Dragonlance book I didn't read or don't remember, <laughs> where someone had this scarf and this is what it did? So therefore, we're going to do sp- this exact thing. I, I doubt that happens, but that's where my yeah, mind goes when I see Fizz that. Van fight something with a scarf, right, right? He wears a scarf, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, I, but even then, I mean, just make this more use make you know make it a one-shot thing or make it a better item or i don't know it's a little weird yeah uh potion of dragon's majesty tell me tell me about it i mean it's a legendary potion right which is pretty uh, amazing 
Uh, and it, it, its result is amazing. You become an adult dragon of the type that this uh, scale is that's inside the potion bottle for one hour. So get to be an adult dragon for an hour. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, I like that. I like that at almost any level of play, right? That could be, it could be right. fun in so many ways. I can imagine a kobold adventure yeah. where this would be amazing, not because you're going to kill them, but you're going to command them, right? Or, right. or, you know, win them over. Like there could be so many neat things to do with yeah. this kind of an item. So, or there's a race, you and a kobold group are racing to get to this potion because they want <laughs> yes. it to, to attack the town and you need to stop them from getting it. And then yes. if you do get it, you can do some pretty crazy things with it. So, yeah, I, I like it. that. Uh, and the last item we're going to discuss is the Topaz Annihilator. Uh, it's a legendary firearm because <laughs> why not? Sure. Because we're going full gem dragon here. Uh, mm-hmm. So tell me about the Topaz Annihilator. It's got a 100-foot or 300-foot range, so if you can see it. Uh, two-handed, deals 2d6 necrotic damage, which I thought was interesting, and disintegrates anything reduced to zero hit points. And if that's not enough, once per day, you actually can cast Disintegrate with it. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know we were looking for this, but there it is. <laughs> the legendary you... gift weapon. Yeah, you, know. you didn't know you needed it, but now you want it. Uh, I sort I mean... of feel like the, the base damage of 2d6... Uh, is is a little low, right? For legendary, the range is amazing. I, you know, I don't know. It's always so interesting to look at items like this. I would probably yeah. bump it up in my home campaign. But then that's the question of: Do you want anybody running around with a topaz annihilator? You know, how does this how does this fit any fiction outside of Spelljammer? I'm not entirely sure, but okay. yeah, yeah. I would I would make a lot of adjustments to that. I would up the normal damage maybe cast disintegrate less uh and but i love the idea of like setting you know settings on normally on stun but we're setting to kill <laughs> yeah. uh, but then there's always that chance that it blows up uh, yeah it's gotta, it's the, gotta have that I feel like it needs that yeah, yeah. and then I if it does that. it casts disintegrate on the person using it or you know maybe it's powered by something that's inside of it and so there's always the chance that it'll briefly get out and attack you would yeah. be really fun oh, that would a variant cool. on blowing up would be just yeah. you know it's got a wraith bound inside some kind of super wraith that's going to come out and yep. tear into you and that'd be a lot of fun all right we got two more things to discuss horde magic items and draconic gifts uh not gifts like the, the... <laughs> Gifts. That's what I want to see. That's yeah, what I was looking for in this dracon- book. Sean. A draconic gift. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about horde magic items. I'm going to let you talk about it because my brain hurts. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do this quickly. This does make your your brain hurt. So the basic concept is a magic item. This is a category of magic items that they grow in power when they're in a dragon's horde slowly over the years. Every year in the dragon's horde empowers it one step up until the maximum based on the age category of the dragon. So this might be a super powerful item if it were in one dragon's horde, not so powerful if it's in a young dragon's horde because it just can't go to the max. If you kill the dragon, then every eight hours in the slain dragon's presence raises it a step. So you almost could have a horde ma- dragon, a horde magic item, take it to a dragon, kill it, and then supercharge it. It's like a Tesla supercharger. Um, we get a table uh, oh and if it's not attuned this is kind of interesting if not attuned and not in a dragon's horde it decreases a step every 30 days 
What I don't understand is, are these both requirements, attuned and in a Dragon's Horde, or is just attuned enough? Mm-hmm. I wasn't entirely sure about what they're trying to say there. Either way, it's quirky. Um, so the idea is that it's super powerful when you first get it, and then it's going to lower over time, I guess, maybe. Uh, we get a quirk, a table of eight quirks that magic items could have because they're horde magic items. That's fine. And then we get four example ones. So one of them is Dragon's Wrath Weapon. When it's slumbering, its lowest state, you roll a, a when you roll a 20, each creature of your choice within five feet of the target takes five damage of the type dealt by the dragon's breath weapon of the dragon that it came from. When it's stirring, the next level up, it's now a plus one attack and damage weapon, and it does an extra d6 of the dragon's damage type. Awakened, it goes up to plus two and another extra d6 damage, and it lets you do a cone action attack, dc16 dex for 8d6 damage, half on save, once per day. So your breath weapon. Ascendant just bumps the damage of all that up. Um, this whole concept did not land with me, Sean. Um, yeah. It's fine, because I feel like this is a one-off and we're never going to see this again. You know, like yeah. this is like just maybe an adventure might feature it, but yeah. I just... I don't know that it fits how we play. Uh, yeah. I I think it would be cool in an adventure. This particular dragon is so powerful that the items in its layer took on more things. Um, but to have it be something that always happens, at this point in my playing career, not to mention my design career, I'm looking for streamlined. I'm looking to make things simpler. Uh, so as a DM, I would never use this unless it was sort of as a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. And as a player, I wouldn't even want these horde items. I can't even remember the items I have that I would use normally. You start, okay, you have a you know a plus two sword or a sword, magical sword. Okay, now it's doing this extra damage. Okay, now it's plus one. Okay, now it's plus two. I would forget like yeah. about the cone if it became wakened. Oh, that's right. I it can because I've got so many other options from my class that I'm dealing with. You know what I'd rather it be which yeah. it sort of is but isn't is just if I simply if this was if you think of like the old dragon slayer weapons, right? That that are mm-hmm. great against a dragon. What if a, a, the weapon instead was empowered every time you interacted with a dragon, whether it's peaceful or otherwise. Um, that would maybe be more interesting because you now want to seek out dragons, if it would give you some bonus. But yeah. I, I think this is so heavy that it creates a meta, right, where the player wants to reach Ascendant level because it's there. Right. And and But that's not what the story is going to lead you to, go to yeah. find some dragon that's way above what you can kill. You know, it's just, it's, it's yeah. sort of at odds with how we play D&D. Right. And so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. What I, what I'm doing now is I'm stepping to the very end of this process and saying, what does this rule? What does this whole style, this system, this concept? What does it actually do? And all it really does is add new powers to magic items. Yeah. So then I ask, do we really need that? Mm-hmm. And if we do need that, if that's something that the game needs, is there an easier way to do it? Yeah, even a more interesting thing to me for my kind of games would be a way that something in a dragon horde would be infused by the dragon's spirit and personality. Mm-hmm. And there would be a way to 
interact so almost like an intelligent item right. but a horde magic item would be an intelligent item that reflects the personality of the dragon and that could yeah. be guidance it could be subversiveness right it could mm -hmm. be a number of things depending on the, the type of personality the dragon has to me that would be more interesting because now you can interact with your item maybe the item can take you over every now and then that would be like a cool mechanic yeah. that i would enjoy yep and you'd always remember that dragon from which you took this item right yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the last thing I thought about, it doesn't really add, mechanically, it, it adds complexity, maybe too much. But story-wise, mm -hmm. it doesn't really add to a narrative. It doesn't really add to this grand or cool outcome to the story. It's just yeah. there are these items sitting there that are gaining power. In, unless you specifically write your adventure so that if this item gains its full power something amazing or terrible yeah. happens. Uh, and then you get the power gamers who are like, I'm going to drag these weapons around because boy, I really want that cone or I really want my weapon to be plus three instead of plus two. So I'm just going to find the nearest dragon and either kill it and yeah. lay it over my weapon to power it uh, or ask a dragon who I like to put it in their lair for a year. Uh, it's just, it's sort of, yeah, asking, and we'll see, asking for power gaming trouble. We'll see in Draconic Gifts as well. There's this concept which is, goes back to this whole, you know, first world idea that, that we talked about in our first uh, first part of this book review, where it's trying to sell us on this concept that powers have the, the, the dragons have this mystical energy tied to them. And so therefore it can act like as a battery for these items. None of it super gels with me. I mean, mm -hmm. Sure, it's a powerful creature, but there are a lot of really powerful things. You know, I don't murder a pit fiend and suddenly charge up a suit of armor. or And so, and while I know that dragons are a very important thing in D&D, in &D, it's half the name, that suddenly saying that they do all these things when they die or, you know, an item is just sitting around in their hoard, it's a little much for me to, to buy into. Yeah. So let's, let's dig into Draconic Gifts, which are sort of... The same thing, right? They're sort of, instead of the magic items gaining power, you gain power when a dragon dies in your presence. Yeah. Um, whether you slew it or not. Uh, we get a table of four possible visual manifestations of the gift, like your eyes change to look like dragon's eyes or dragon scales uh, cover parts of your body. Uh, the rarity of the gift is tied to the age category of the dragon. Um, we get eight example gifts such as a Draconic Familiar that basically lets you cast Fine Familiar and gain a Pseudo-Dragon. Uh, you get Draconic Rebirth, where you become a Dragonborn rather than whatever species that you were. Um, you get Scaled Toughness, Resistance to Piercing or Slashing, uh, Frightful Presence, where as a bonus action, uh, three times per, a proficiency bonus times per day, you can make people make a save against you or be frightened. Uh, and so, you know, some of these are pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's the same thing to me. It's just sort of adding more power to a character. When is that something the game really needs? Yeah, and and I think that while there's an understanding here that this can be interesting, right? Like if I have a pseudo dragon familiar because I killed a dragon, um, that could cause me to have some neat interactions and a relate and so on. But but it also could not be right um it could it could lack that flavor it isn't necessarily providing the flavor and what i would rather this be is 
some sort of consequence reward system where, you know, maybe if I murder this dragon, possibly for very reasonable reasons, um, I might have some part of its essence uh, impose a quest upon me. And uh, upon doing this, I, I would I would gain a benefit. Um, or, you know, maybe the, the dragon had a thing it had to accomplish, and I can sense that, right? And so that could result in a gift uh, when I complete that thing because, the you know. But I don't know. Overall, I found this, yeah, to me it felt a little so-so. And it even sort of says, like, oh, you can just use, you know, feats and give things from feats uh, as a draconic gift. And it's sort of like, well, I don't know that we I needed more ideas for power. Right. Yeah, and, and and what I need is interesting things that my players are going to be excited about, not just power. As you were talking, I'm sitting here thinking this is basically Skyrim. Uh, <laughs> if if you've ever played Skyrim, it, you know one of the things you do is run around and kill dragons, and and absorb their power. And so I was like, did I wonder if someone would just like, hey, this is Skyrim, let's do this. Mm. But you know, we once upon a time in D and D. We used to have a name for running around and killing dragons and gaining power from that. It was called gaining a level, <laughs> right? And, and you could yeah. you could run a well, seriously though you could run a whole campaign, which is that's what leveling is. It's not experience points, right? It's, it's you run around and you kill monsters and absorb their life life yeah. force and the powers that you get for your class are the powers that you're absorbing from other creatures. Yeah. Yeah. It felt to me like both of these, the, the horde items and the draconic gifts are just not, they're interesting concepts, but I feel like they're, they're in their, they're, they're a bit away from where I want them to be for them to be interesting at tables mm -hmm. or sufficiently interesting at tables, I guess. Right. Have them tied to stories rather than abilities. Yeah. Yeah. And even character destinies rather than abilities. Yeah. And, and specifically because, like you said, we already have lots of rewards we can give out. Mm -hmm. So just rewards is kind of more of the same. And, and you just gave me, you know, 13 new magic items. So I can, all, I can give those already. Right. So it's sort of like, why? Yeah. Give me a little yep. more story, some interesting things that then might actually sell me on that larger concept of what dragons can do, I guess. So that was chapter two. Chapter three will be next time where we talked about dragons in play, including role-playing dragons, their followers, encounters, adventures, and campaigns. Uh, anything else before we head out, Tavs? No. All right. In that case, thank you all for listening, and thank you to our patrons. Um, if you like the show, I hope that you would please consider become a patron by going to patreon.com slash mmp. Uh, Teos, where can people find you on social media? Aha. Uh -huh. You can find my website at alphastream.org. Get a free product there. Or on Twitter at alphastream. How about you, Sean? Uh, you could find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Or you can follow the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. &D. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected mark production. So, Teos, now that we have all these powers and magic items from our dragon friends. What are we going to do now? We're going to start up the Dead Dragon Spa, where for eight hours you can soak in a tub of dragon blood and get all of its powers. I'm going to get you a gift certificate for Christmas. <laughs> dragon Spa.